Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. This episode today is sponsored by Wise Meter Solutions. Forward-thinking owners and managers are embracing submetering, and more of those companies are choosing Wise Meter Solutions as their partner. With 185,000 suites under contract, Wise has become synonymous with creating the efficient buildings of tomorrow your residents want today. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I'm Aaron Cameron. With me, as always, is Adam Pawatic. Our guest today, a gentleman by the name of Tony Irwin, who is the president and CEO of the Federation of Rental Providers of Ontario. Second time on, right? Tony, the first time you were on, it was early on in your tenure in your current role. Now you're a bit seasoned. So it'd be nice to have you back on and get a sense of what you've been doing over the last couple of years. Tony, thanks for coming on. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me back. I really appreciate it. You know, we usually do a history with our guests of what your past was and what your career trajectory was, but we've kind of done that. So I think maybe in the show notes, we'll put a link to the previous episode and if people want to go back, they can go, but let's just jump right in to where you are. You know, just at least to set the stage, let's give new listeners or listeners that maybe don't recall what is FERPO, what's their purpose, and what have you been doing over the last couple of months? So FERPO, just for anyone who doesn't know, know, the largest advocate for quality rental housing in the province, established in 1985. 2,200 members who represent about 350,000 rental units across the province. Our membership is comprised of those who own, build, manage, finance, supply, and service rental housing. So we're sort of the leading voice for quality rental housing in the province of Ontario. I got to ask then, in your interactions, your interests are fully aligned with the landlords. That is your position, or do you have a larger stakeholder group that you know, you'd represent? Obviously, landlords, and of course, you know we have supplier members and vendors and so on, but it's all to support those who provide rental housing in the province of Ontario. That's our mission. That's our mandate to advocate with government on their behalf and for an environment that we think is fair and healthy for both, quite frankly, both for landlords and for tenants. Don't forget lenders, Tony. We also are a member of your great organization. If you don't have lenders, you can't do much. Money is very important. <laughs> Real estate's the most capital-intensive industry. Before we keep going... I'm just curious, and we have sure. listeners nationwide, so yeah. FERPO is the Ontario organization. Are you aligned with others in different provinces? Great question. FERPO, certainly we do have relationships with many other associations. Unlike some other organizations, we're not a chapter model system, so we have members who are individual landlords. But of course, there are regional associations dotted around the province, and so there are several that we work closely with in different regions, who some have been very long established in places like Waterloo, London, Hamilton, Eastern Ontario. For example, of course, Toronto has its own association as well. So we work very closely with those associations. Many of their members would be ours too, but some would not. And then there are others who I do travel to, and we could do that kind of thing. I would travel around the different communities who would invite me, local associations. I would come and speak to them and meet their members and talk to them about what we're sort of working on. And that's part outreach, part membership recruitment, that sort of thing. Nationally, though, we do work with many other provincial associations. So there is a federal association, the Canadian Federation of Apartment Associations, that I'm privileged to serve on the board of that group based in Ottawa, who advocates nationally on behalf of landlords, landlord associations and individuals who join them. A variety of national issues that you can appreciate, taxation, environmental initiatives, green programs, there are a lot of areas that we know that housing is a provincial jurisdiction primarily, but there are issues federal government gets involved in that is important for our members too. And then through that, I do have involvement with, and as FERPO does with many of the provincial associations that exist in different provinces, Nova Scotia, BC, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, 
who are active and we engage with them and exchange information and so on. It's a pretty good, very robust system of apartment associations across the country. And one more question before we move into some of the initiatives that you've been working on. Clearly, you represent the landlords, but there must be some alignment with tenant associations as well because they go hand in hand. Maybe just talk about you know what that dynamic looks like. They do. That's a trickier conversation. I admittedly don't spend a lot of time with tenant organizations and groups. It happens usually in green rooms when we could be in green rooms before going on programs or interviews or perhaps at Queen's Park at a committee. It's something that I never like to taint all of one thing with the same brush. I sort of say that, but certainly recently we have been experiencing quite an escalation of activity we're seeing from some of these groups. And that has involved things like protesting at private residences of our members, protesting at offices of our members, doing things that I would suggest go far beyond what I think is acceptable in terms of peaceful protest. That's certainly something that it's concerning to us. We understand that the landlord-tenant relationship is a somewhat adversarial one. I wish it wasn't as much as it is, but that predates long before I've arrived in this role. But certainly those kinds of activities, there are places to protest and places not to. And Meritoria had his condo protested as well. So, you know, those are things that sort of are part of the at play in more recent times in terms of the relationship that I would prefer not to see happening. And perhaps some outreach needs to happen there, but it's definitely something that we're watching closely. Drawing a peace accord between landlords and tenants would be a heck of a legacy to leave behind from this role, but that might be a task too big. (laughs) Yes. But it is something that I think about and, you know, we'll try to figure that out as we go forward. Maybe there are all branches that can be extended. But right now, as you guys know, we're in the thick of a real crisis. And so that's occupying all of our time. Right now. It is worth mentioning, we are right now recording on January 5th, and we're in the throes of the post-Christmas gatherings that have definitely caused a large spike in numbers. And so we thought it would be relevant today. I mean, obviously, we've covered COVID quite a bit in the past, and I would say that our coverage mirrored how this pandemic has gone. Aaron and I really eased off a pandemic discussion during the summer, but I think that now there's ramping up again. And here in Ontario, anyway, we're back into another lockdown, focusing a bit on how it's impacting apartment owners would be relevant today. And I know that that is occupying a lot of Tony's time recently. So we'd love to get your thoughts on what you're advocating for as a landlord representative as we head into you know this next more serious round of COVID. When the pandemic began, I think it's fair to say that none of us really knew what to expect. We didn't know we were facing. We didn't know what the extent of it, of the challenge would be. That was pretty clear. So we spent time right away kind of mobilizing our members, trying to understand what they were seeing on the ground. That involves collecting data and really just trying to understand what they were experiencing. So you fast forward through the first few months and we started doing that every month, collecting data around rent collection, for example, understanding what our members are doing as far as safety protocols, doing things to try to keep both their residents and their employees safe. What we found, and it hasn't changed much over time, even up till present, is in terms of rent arrears, we're very fortunate and we recognize that. The vast majority of Ontario renters have been able to pay their rent. That's a really great thing. And I think it speaks to, I guess, the Ontario spirit, if you will. I mean, I don't mean it's been easy for everyone, but certainly, obviously, it would seem that most people who do rent recognize that they've entered into a contract with their landlord and they were doing everything they can to pay. Certainly, it was very helpful for that. There are many people who received that and they were able to use that assistance to pay their rent. That said, there was still a percentage of residents who were not able to pay or were able to pay in part or not able to pay at all. People would ask me, well, what's a normal month look like pre-pandemic? Well, pre-pandemic, probably wouldn't surprise you guys to know that probably 98% or so depending on the building and the portfolio, the location. But the vast, vast majority of rent is paid in full every month. That's the kind of business that this is. Yes, there are always exceptions and there are always people who can't or or don't for one reason or another. But the vast majority of residents pay their rent. 
That's the, the scene set sort of before the pandemic. So now, you know, we do have probably somewhere around three to four percent rent that's not being paid. That's the total sort of arrears amount each month. And on its face, it doesn't seem like a big number. And compared to many other industries, it's not. But it is still a number. It's double, right, Tony? I mean, if you think about it, uh, it that perspective. Yeah, absolutely. So that still is an impact. And we, again, recognizing that early on, you know, our mission really was to work with our members and in turn our members work with their residents to ensure that they had as much information as possible about the pandemic. In fact, a lot of uh, members turned some of their staff into kind of, I would say, their role became one of guidance and helping residents apply for government assistance. We know that applying for things with government is never easy or straightforward. It's quite complicated sometimes. So actually having, whether it was leasing agents or others whose normal roles were kind of changing for obvious reasons, would actually, for a period of time, would transition into helping residents actually navigate that process. So providing information, ensuring that those who could get help were getting it, knew where to go to get it, and really just trying to sort of do all we could do to heed the calls of whether it be the Prime Minister, the Premier, Mayor Tory, and others, when they said, or Minister Clark, be flexible, be compassionate, do everything you can to work with your residents. We've been doing that and we continue to do that as time goes on. And what we've seen since is remarkable stories of our members going above and beyond, whether it's getting groceries, getting prescriptions, offering payment plans, deferring rent, all those things that you've probably heard about, all of that was going on. And we also established an emergency measures working group within FERPO. So that's getting members together who would have meetings. I think originally it was weekly, then it was bi-weekly. Now I think it's monthly to share best practices. What are you seeing in your buildings? What are you seeing on the ground? Are the things we can learn from or ideas we can share collectively as an industry that will help us help our residents and help our staff and our frontline workers who put themselves out there day after day to ensure that buildings are safe and clean. So it's doing all of that. It's really coming together. And I was very heartened by what I saw then and what I continue to see, which is an industry that has come together, recognizes that this is a crisis. You guys have been around the industry longer than I. It's not the first time there's been a crisis and it won't be the last, but this is a big one. But coming together and really trying to work hard for the collective good. And, you know, it's not perfect. We're not perfect. But I think we've worked really hard to try to be as understanding as we can and be as helpful as we can to people in what is obviously a very stressful and unprecedented time we're all in. So you mentioned rent arrears, and I don't want to sound cold about it, but maybe that's the way it's got to be expressed. But Aaron and I are lenders, and so we think about debt. And landlords are now in a position where they are holding effectively quite a bit of debt on behalf of a lot of tenants. Aaron and I, of course, are blessed to the fact that we have a lot of security for our debt, personal guarantees and against property. But in this case, you have a large pool of debt secured against not a whole lot. Is there concerns for the landlords that a significant portion of these arrears will not be repaid at all ever? I think there's definitely a concern. And so at the very beginning, again, of the pandemic, I sent a letter to the minister, again, without knowing the full scope, but said, you know, we recognize that we're in a crisis now. Likely this is going to result in some not being able to pay rent. We put forward at that time a proposal we call the Ontario Rental Assistance Program. We've since fleshed it out and kind of tweaked it a bit based on what we've seen over the last eight or nine months. But we wanted to get out right away to say, we see that there could be an issue here. We think that it's going to require some support and we want to work with you, but we want to just sort of put on your radar now that there could well be a situation that for one or two months is probably not that big of a deal. But if this does go on for a longer period of time, it could become a bigger issue. So we're seeing that now. And I hear examples from members who have residents, their arrears might be twelve, sixteen, eighteen thousand dollars 
that's a lot of money. And as we've said, we're now fully into phase two, province-wide lockdown. Where will this go? None of us really know. But in terms of arrears, they're continuing to grow for some residents. And so what's the resolution for this? We're not, as an industry, looking to get into sort of a period of mass evictions. That's not at all we want. But there's got to be some kind of resolution to arrears of this magnitude. I think we should pause for a second because we're going to get into discussions about landlord-tenant board and sort of challenges we're having with the rent freeze and some different legislation that's been implemented. But I think it's important, I mean, particularly even from my perspective and Adam's perspective as lenders, predominantly in the multifamily space, that who our clients are, your members, are all passionate caring for the most part, wanting to do the right thing, want to make sure that they're giving everybody every opportunity to stay in their residence and do everything they can to support the community. I know the topics we're covering are kind of adversarial at times, which is why I kind of brought up the landlord-tenant relationship to begin with. I just maybe want to just talk about the sentiment that you're getting from your members and just how they're feeling, what they're trying to do to continue the community and continue maintaining that culture in their buildings and just what kind of language or what kind of conversations have you been having? What I hear from my members is, for sure, there is some frustration, definitely around whether it be some of the activities I was referencing earlier, around some of the kind of protesting and strikes and some of the coverage around the board. And I guess we know we're a vilified industry. We know that that's the case. But certainly, I hear from members who feel like we really feel like we're really going above and beyond. And it's not that you need to pass on the back, but yet we still seem to be painted in this brush of we're still the evil bad landlords. And I think there are certainly some who feel like that's really misplaced right now. It doesn't mean there aren't people who are having challenges. And as you both know, I don't represent every landlord in the province, so I can't speak to every circumstance or every example. But as it relates to our members, I think they really feel like they are doing what's been asked of us and beyond that. But I mean, in terms of what we've been specifically sort of called upon by government to do, I think we would have done it anyway. But doing that and more and really trying to do our part to continue to provide quality rental housing, continue to provide roofs over people's heads. Security of housing is so important. and We all know that. We don't want people to feel like that's a jeopardy or a risk. But it doesn't mean that there aren't issues for rental housing providers as well, as you both know. I mean, in terms of increasing escalating costs, doing things we weren't doing before, having rent frozen, having tenants who can't pay. The dynamics, as you know, are different. The economics are different whether you have a duplex or a few units versus whether you have several thousand. You might have an ability to sort of, you might be able to better manage some of these challenges if you have a larger portfolio or a different type of mix of portfolio than if you have a small one. And I do hear from small landlords who say the whole conversation that occurred several months ago around, well, the banks are deferring mortgage payments. Well, they weren't giving mortgage holidays, but there was a perception I was asked a lot. Well, you guys are good. The banks are deferring mortgage payments. And I said, well, do you understand how that really works? They're adding it on to the end. They're not taking an eraser and rubbing it off the board entirely. That payment will come due. It's just not coming due now, but it's going to come due later. So very mindful that a lot of people are in difficult circumstances, but so are we to some extent. And it affects different members differently. As you know, different landlords have different circumstances. But for some, it's been a real struggle and there's a real risk of losing their property and or a risk of them saying, I don't want to be in this business anymore. I just can't do it. I'm not able to, or it's not something that works for me anymore. Those are very real challenges that we're facing. And the conversations we have, though, are still around, going to continue to do everything we're doing, really hope that we're able to get through this, that the economy will start to turn around. And as for arrears, that there'll be some kind of solution, perhaps that will help us address the most significant cases, which I would suggest in a percentage terms is a very small percentage of residents, as I've spoken to, but it's still an issue. The sort of suggestion that we should just be able to absorb that. Well, that's not realistic. That can't be the answer. The answer has to be perhaps one of 
working together and involving a solution that involves both rental housing providers and government and tenant, but perhaps some kind of solution in some of those circumstances. Those are the kind of conversations we're still having going forward. I have one follow-up comment, I guess, Tony. You can sure. follow up if you want, or let's just move on to you know, maybe sure. talking about what's going on at the board. But I think it's a really interesting comment you made. And I want to maybe emphasize it because I think it's important. The distinction between that small landlord and the large landlord, and we see it in our portfolio at First National Loans, lends to large multinational owners of apartments down to the individual who scraped together their life savings with their three friends and bought a sixplex. The multinational is the one that's probably, they can absorb a lot of the rears and deferred payments. That individual that owns a sixplex, if two of their tenants stop paying, they all of a sudden can't pay their mortgage payments, can't cover their own costs. If they're living off of the cash flow, and they get put between a real rock and a hard space because they're clearly compassionate about their two tenants that are unable to make payment because they're falling on hard times. But the landlord is also falling on hard times. And I think sometimes, unfortunately, it's those stories that that landlord now has to make decisions on what they do, whether it's evictions or what have you. And those are the stories that end up in the newspapers. And those are the stories that get brushed across all landlords. And I think it's just an interesting dynamic. And I challenge listeners, when you hear those things, think about the circumstances. It's not the green winds or the cap reach or the homesteads of the world that are taking these actions. It's honestly the small little guys that really have no other choice. Absolutely. So let's move on. I mean, maybe that's a segue into what's going on with the LTB and just in evictions in general. Yeah. So, I mean, that's getting a lot of attention, obviously. And so we know if we rewind back to, you know, March, April, we know that the board closed down and there was a moratorium on evictions. And again, we understood why the government took that step in the early days of the pandemic. I mean, it was, again, something that was quite understandable, I think, to most, if not all people. But fast forward in time to July, the government sort of view was that as the emergency orders rescinded, things were able to start to reopen again. That included the board. It took some time for the board to kind of ramp back up again. But as of shortly before the holiday break, my understanding is they were hearing cases from, I think, August, perhaps they were getting close to September. Still a backlog, but they were attempting to relieve that backlog. Now, when the board first opened, when the moratorium was lifted, then evictions that were being processed first were ones that had been orders that had been granted by the board pre-pandemic. So that's an important sort of distinction. There were a lot of orders that were in the queue that had been orders that had come down from the board, but that the enforcement was in the queue, eviction. So nothing happened on those orders for some months. And so they were the first ones then to be enforced, obviously, when things resumed. And so those were all matters that had nothing to do with the pandemic. They could have been residents or tenants who hadn't paid rent for 9, 10, 12 months before the pandemic. And we're moving through the process. And that was the ultimate resolution. And as we know, the Landlord-Tenant Board exists to mediate the disputes between landlords and tenants. And so that's what's happening. We've moved through that. And we're, as I understand it now, the board is working on hearing cases that are, again, now during the pandemic. And as I said earlier, we're not looking for, it is not our desire or intent to see mass evictions, but it is our system in terms of part of rent controls system or part of our uh, rental ecosystem in the province is a landlord-tenant board. It does exist for these disputes. And while the mass majority of hearings do relate to non-payment of rent, there are other mm-hmm. cases that go to the board for other things. And so I think our view is that process does need to be there and it needs to be available and for cases to go forward. And I think though, even within that, I talked to many members who are saying, we're not moving on that. We're not moving on anybody right now. We're not issuing N4s, we're not issuing L1s. We're not interested in doing that. Again, it doesn't mean that no one is. Obviously, I'm sure you've seen some of the coverage in the media around virtual hearings and some of the challenges that have perhaps been encountered there. But many of our members are not doing it at all. They are continuing to, the payment plan with their tenant might be $50, $100 a month. That's still the plan. The resident's making the payments. The landlord says, that's fine. We're just going to you know, let this ride and see what happens down the road. But there are other landlords, as we've talked about, who have different circumstances. 
and for whom they may see no recourse or no alternative except uh, going through the LTV process, which is the duly legislated process that we have for this. So I am sympathetic and I am certainly mindful of some of the comments that I read about from tenant advocates. But at the end of the day, this is our system. And I think obviously through Bill 184, now rental housing providers are mandated to provide payment plans. I believe that that legislation provided strength and protections for tenants. I know that they would not agree, but I certainly believe there are a number of measures put in that legislation that actually enhance protections for tenants. And so I think you know we need to be able to move forward with the system we have in place to be able to adjudicate these types of disputes. And that's what the board's doing. Yeah, of course, it is worth mentioning that bad tenants are going to exist before the pandemic, during the pandemic, and after the pandemic. And dealing with that's definitely been hampered. But there's not really room for nuance in terms of COVID solutions. Everything tends to be a blunt force instrument. We've talked quite a bit about the financial impact of COVID, which is universal and a major issue. But there's, of course, you know, the health aspect too. In Ontario, we're hitting record highs now of outbreaks. These people all live somewhere and a bunch of them are going to be in apartments. What are your members doing where they have had an actual COVID outbreak in a building? Does it look like a scene from a biohazard movie with helicopters flying over and airlocks in between? the front door and all the units. What do you actually do if there's a COVID outbreak in your building? I, fortunately, I think that haven't heard, really haven't been involved in many conversations. I mean, I did hear over the holidays of an outbreak in one of our members' buildings in London. I do know that obviously there are cases occurring. I mean, pretty reasonable to assume that, that would be the case. I know that, first of all, of course, you're in touch with the public health units and you're really taking correction and guidance from them in terms of what to do. Through our emergency measures working group, came up with a guide, sort of best practices a new resource for our members that we put out. I think it's 176 pages that covers all manner of different aspects of property management, building operations, everything you can imagine. And of course, there are all these sort of informations that we receive from different public health units around what you do, around all the PP, around all the different sanitation that you need to do. But in terms of whether someone tests positive, then the health unit is in contact with the individual and they are the ones who are driving what needs to happen. Outbreaks, of course, I presume are a little bit of a different matter, but I've really not been involved what I referenced is the first one I've heard about in one of our members' buildings, and it only just happened over the holidays. So the information that I got was we really need to continue to ensure that we educate our members and residents on what you need to do to be able to obviously keep yourself safe and healthy. So in terms of all the messaging we're hearing from government around no social gatherings and around keeping physical distance and washing your hands and all those things, the same information that applies to us applies to our residents in our, in our buildings. We just have to be doing all we can to continue to communicate that information continue to do everything we do to keep our buildings as clean and safe as we can. And then it's really down to individuals and really just hoping that everyone does what they're supposed to do. But obviously, based on the cases, we know that perhaps that's not going as smoothly as we like it to. So we just have to continue to educate and inform as best we can and hope that people take that education, that advice and do the right thing. Sanitize, wear a mask. You know, you're seeing that everywhere. And every once in a while, I see people out without wearing masks at grocery stores. And I always just kind of shake my head like, it's hard to believe anyone not wearing one. Of course, wearing a mask. What are you doing? I, mean, I, I, get, yeah. I get freedom of speech or whatever, but you know, come on, put a mask on. No, absolutely <laughs> number one, wear a mask. Absolutely. Let's segue into just maybe how the pandemic and these issues are impacting rents and vacancy in the marketplace and just kind of what you're hearing from your members. Right. So I think for 2020, we're expecting sort of a province-wide vacancy rate of about 3%. That's up from, say, about 2% in 2019. So we know that a healthy rental market is considered to be absolute minimum 3% vacancy. 
So that's what we're sort of working with Urban Nation, what we're sort of expecting to see. And then, you know, within that, there are obviously some regional kind of disparities, if you will. I mean, Toronto is kind of, and I wouldn't say Toronto, it's really downtown is really driving sort of four to four and a half percent vacancy rate. You know, GTA more like three to three and a half. Most other regions are pretty unchanged, pretty flat from where they were. So markets like London and Kingston were tight before. They're still tight now. There hasn't been a lot of change in those markets. And in fact, I think it might even be tighter because I think there are some who, of course, have sort of decided or concluded that in the new sort of working from home reality that they don't necessarily need to be living where they were. And they can now go live somewhere else because as long as they have an internet connection and a computer, you can maybe work from a different place. So in fact, I think we maybe are probably seeing people moving out of the city, perhaps. I don't, I don't have any data to say exactly how that's going, but I think we just know anecdotally that it is happening to some extent. So some of those outer you know, sort of markets are not really seeing much of a change. It really is downtown Toronto where we're seeing, I mean, I've heard of examples from some members where they've got 10% vacancy in the building. And it's been a long time since people have seen those kinds of numbers. So definitely that's what we're seeing in terms of vacancy rates. People move back home, students who are not here now, you know, that sort of thing has definitely hit some areas harder than others, especially downtown Toronto. The next question is going to probably fall more in the domain of forward-looking economist. And I think Aaron has an economics major. I'm not sure about your education background, but do you believe in the rapid bounce back theory? So if the downtown luxury Toronto got hit the worst, will it bounce back the fastest as the vaccines get deployed throughout the population? I'm going to suggest I'm probably not the right guy to ask that question. (laughs) I'm not Benjamin Tal or Aaron Cameron for that matter. I don't know whether that's going to happen or not. I'm not an economist and I, I don't ever like to make predictions in areas that I'm really not qualified or equipped to do. I do think that there will be a recovery for sure. I mean, I base that on immigration and recovering economy. I think it seems to me that there will be a recovery in that sense. That number will certainly change from where it is right now, but to what extent will it change and how and when I really don't have a line of sight on those things. It just seems to me that even though there may be some exodus out of the city, there's still going to be a lot of people who are going to want to live in the city. I think this is more temporary than permanent, but that's probably the extent that I should be predicting anything. Oh, come on, Tony. You, you can stand firm. You know that it's temporary, not permanent. And, I do believe and, it's temporary, but I, beyond that, yeah, <laughs> I could get myself into trouble if I said more, but I do. No, fair. Temporary. I can say whatever I want, so I'll say it for you. Actually, I won't even say it. I'll just use Colin Lynch, who was a guest on one of the webinars that Adam and I released. Very, very smart man from TD Asset Management who was referencing the great fires that have ravaged downtown cores and wars that have destroyed downtown cores. And he said, every single time the city comes back bigger and stronger, people by nature, by evolution, by genetic code, want to live close to other people. However long it'll take, maybe it's two years, maybe it's 10, whatever it is, people will go back to a very vibrant city core. So the city is not dead. And I guess that's my point. Timeframes, who knows? City's not dead. That's the reality. I think that's a safe bet. I think I would put all my chips on that. Well, then on that same vein, then, if the downtown cores have a vibrant future, which Aaron's confirmed for us, <laughs> the supply issues will persist. I mean, yeah. there is the most construction we've seen in decades going on, but we all know it's not even close to enough. So what's the longer term view on supply coming on stream and the continued demand? I've been asked a few times lately, are our members still building and kind of what's their outlook? And the short answer is, yes, they still are and still want to be. I have no doubt that some projects have slowed or there have been obviously issues related to the pandemic that might be delaying some things for, I'm sure, obvious reasons. But the bottom line is we do have members, of course, who still want to build. We have a big need for supply. And so conversations we were having sort of, in fact, right before the pandemic began, we had a report from Urban Nation that then got held for a while. And eventually I said, we've got to just get this thing out there, even if only six people read it. Otherwise, it becomes completely stale dated. So we put it out in July. But that was a report that we asked them to do to look at 
to further our idea around unicorn sites. And so that's the whole notion of there are numerous sites, I think the Urban Nation Report sites over 900, sort of in the GTA. It wasn't a province-wide study. We weren't able to have that wide of a scope, but certainly in the sort of GTHA region, some 900 sites that they identified that they feel could accommodate additional infill development. Now, again, I'm sure there's some sites where for whatever reason it might not work, but the point is, I was asked after I first sort of came out with this kind of idea, well, how many sites are we talking about? Is this a little idea, a medium-sized idea, a big idea? So we said, well, let's find out. Let's get some additional sort of insight on that. So, you know, if there are 900 sites that could accommodate, even if half of them actually could work out or three quarters of them, whatever it might be, that could produce well over 100,000 units. And many of those sites are, you know, sort of along transit corridors, near transit stations. So it makes a lot of sense to us that if we have a need for additional housing, which I think we all know and, and accept that we do, how are we going to get it? We can continue to go around and around and around about all the reasons why people think it can't happen or shouldn't happen or what have you. I'd rather be in the business of talking about how we can make it happen in a way that makes sense, in a way that's reasonable and thoughtful. And so our point is these sites exist. Why wouldn't we look at trying to expedite development on some of these sites to be able to actually get shovels in the ground and get housing built? It's as simple as that. But we wanted to bring forward another report, a little more comprehensive report to government to say, so here's what we're talking about. And this could actually produce significant housing if we could get some kind of a concierge service, some kind of a fast track process for these applications so they don't get stuck in red tape for five years and actually can get off the ground. So we were advocating for that before the pandemic and we're advocating for it now. It's no secret. Of course, we had a housing crisis pre-COVID. I think we just established COVID's temporary and things are going to go back to normal, quote unquote. But we're still going to have a housing crisis once everything goes back to, you know, again, quote unquote, normal. The issue was a supply issue. I mean, if you just crawled out from under a rock, it's a supply issue, not a demand issue, of course. I think you had referenced, I can't remember if it was during recording or pre-recording, that we're short 20,000 units a year. Is that accurate? Over Over the next decade, yeah. Over the next decade, so that's two hundred thousand units, or is that two right. million units? Anyway, no, two hundred thousand. Uh, economic that's, major, honestly. We believe so, you. No one else does, but we believe you. <laughs> so you just referenced one hundred thousand sites. That's half of what we need. The report that Urban Nation did with us could represent one hundred sixty thousand units. They don't own these sites. There could be factors that they haven't considered, or that might not make it work everywhere. But you're right. Even if we were to leverage that, we'd still need more. But that'd be a great start. And I think that's really the point we were trying to make was. We want to be constructive and come up with something that actually we think is meaningful. And if your number is 200,000 that you're trying to get to, sort for 160 or some version of 160 would make a dent. Have you had conversations with government representatives, municipal, federal, whatever, provincial, I guess, who have acknowledged that there's a serious supply issue and we need to solve this problem? Like, I just never really come across a story where someone said, no, you're right. We actually need to do this. Like, who's the advocate on the other side of this trying internally to fix it? So to be fair, the Ontario government, the Ford government definitely is well aware of the issue. They're sort of, I guess, the minister's had several pieces of legislation on housing, but I would say kind of his pivotal one or the sort of showcase one was the More Homes, More Choice Act, which was intended to bring more supply online and do things to improve the environment for more supply, which you know we obviously really need. So we do have you know an ally and a partner, I think, in the Ontario government. I would say, obviously, the pandemic has, as we all know and been talking about, has kind of overshadowed everything for some period of time. But the provincial government recognizes that we have a huge need for more supply. I mean, and they have people, whether it's myself or whether it's my good friends, Tim Hudak or Joe Vaccaro or Dave Wilkes, you know, all talking to them about those needs. It's they're hearing it from many others besides just myself. So it's how do we get there? And it's, of course, as you guys know, this is a multi-jurisdictional issue. The province can only do so much to make these things happen. You know, a lot of the hurdles and obstacles are at the municipal level. 
And of course, uh, you know, would make no surprise I'm talking about the city of Toronto, of course. And so I think recognizing that the province does have in its toolbox the ability to do some things. But then when you look at some of the challenges and obstacles that our members face in terms of getting projects approved and actually getting shovels in the ground, every time I'd see Minister Clark, he'd be with the shovel and I'd say, I'm with you. I want to see shovels in the ground just as much as you do. But certainly some of the obstacles that would be standing in our way would be municipal related. And so that is definitely something that we need to see if we can do more trying to kind of unlock or try to sort of solve for some of those issues. But I would be disingenuous if I didn't say that there are municipal hurdles here. And it's not to say that none of their concerns are valid or we're not suggesting there should be no oversight or no process for getting applications approved. Of course, there has to be. But the manner in which it's done, the length of time it takes to get things done, I think we would all agree is not ideal. And, you know, sort of the nimbyism and no one wants anything built anywhere and no one wants anything more than whatever number of stories, pick a number that's not enough for a sort of global city like Toronto. Density has to be part of the conversation. I know there will always be someone who doesn't like anything you suggest, but at some point there has to be a greater vision that says, yes, I understand. So let's try to do what we can to be understanding and to be inclusive and to sort of take issues into account. But we have to get on with actually building the city. And that means there has to be density. I'm sure that there'd be many on that side of the conversation who wouldn't agree with me, but that's one of the reasons why we have a housing crisis. So we have to try to overcome some of those hurdles. So maybe for a more positive spin on the situation, you mentioned the concierge rapid approval for purpose-built rental, and I'm sure you could rhyme off 10 other recommendations that would improve the process. So you're advocating on this side which ones do get the warmest response or what are we most likely to see in the next three years of any of the landlord representative side recommendations to improve the rental housing situation? Which one do you feel best about? Not your favorite, but what's the one do you feel best about actually moving forward into real life? The real crystal ball kind of question. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I'm not the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing, obviously, but I guess, and I never like to skirt questions or dodge questions. The short answer is I really don't know. I mean, you guys know the industry of which I work in is one where we're often sort of on defense trying to advocate for government to not do things that would be destructive to us. Some of the things that happened, decisions made by the previous Wynn government, we spent a lot of time advocating against some things that we thought would be really unhelpful. Those are always concerns for us. They're always on the radar. The NDPs put out their housing platform already for the next campaign, and they're talking about things like getting rid of vacancy decontrol and getting rid of AGIs and full rent control on everything everywhere. So that's not necessarily shocking, but we know that these hot button issues are never far from the forefront. So a lot of time is spent by us trying to advocate, educate elected officials on these important issues and why they would be destructive to our industry if they were to be implemented or adopted. So that's got to be kind of the overarching kind of statement here. Beyond that, what do I see that's positive that could happen? I mean, in terms of our suggestion around unlocking unicorn sites and all that, I don't know if we're going to get movement on that or not during this term of government. I think obviously governments have lots on their plate and there's lots of work that's been done by this government that has been helpful. They have done things that have been helpful. It's really important to sort of state that some of the changes that have been made have been helpful, but we're trying to turn around a big ship. The supply gap we have is massive and it's been built up over a long time. So for one government to come in and to really be able to make all of the changes that you would want to see to be able to really turn that around, understanding how complex, how complicated getting housing built is, is probably not realistic. But this government, who knows what will happen the next election, but this government has done some good things and we would hope that as we go forward, we'd be able to keep talking about our ideas around really trying to get more supply built. I mean, FERPO's mission, when you think about it, it really is, there's two sort of parallel tracks we're always working on. 
burdens certainly are these days. One is around trying to get more supply built that we've talked about. And the other is about improving the environment for those who provide rental housing, the operating climate. And so those discussions are often around the functioning of the board. Well, you know, just in the last few months, we've now seen the government increase the amount of adjudicators by about 50. We went from 40 some odd to 90 some odd. That's a big change. We were calling for that from the time they were elected. It's now happened. That's a significant improvement in terms of number of adjudicators and resources. And they've done other things, I think, to improve the functioning of that. So that's very important for a lot of our members. Now, on the other side of the house, the equation here, getting more supply built. And, you know, they have done things that are helpful in terms of some of the government imposed fees and charges, trying to make the landscape better, returning the LPAT to a more OMB style of functioning. So I'd be remiss if I didn't sort of point out that the current government has done things. There are many more things that we obviously need to do. But I think a lot of that is, quite frankly, conversations that have to happen sort of even beyond government as a society around, we need to house people. And what's the right way to go about doing that? How does that look going forward in the 21st century? How do we sort of get people to come along some of these ideas that say, we need to get more housing built. Rental is a huge part of the equation. There are a lot of people who rent. It's not the housing of last resort anymore. Like it may have been, maybe there's some who still feel that way, but it simply is not. And as we go forward, there'll be more people who will rent by choice, Sure, some rent because buying is unaffordable, and we hear lots of discussions about that from our friends over at Maria and otherwise. But you know, we really need to engage in a broader conversation around we attract people to come to a great country, great region, great city, great province that we live in. We have to house them. And what does that look like? How do we do that? We can't just expect it's going to happen. You know, I always say like hope is not a strategy. So what are we going to do? And I think part of that involves a bigger conversation. Yes, affordability is a big issue. We all know that. What does that mean? How do we get at that? How do we get at making housing more affordable for people? It's a complicated subject. So none of these things are easy, but I do think that it involves more conversations. And that's why having a podcast like this are great. It gives an opportunity for people to listen to some of these issues. And I don't have all the answers by any stretch of the imagination, but I think it does involve collaboration, working together to try to say, what's the way forward? And rental is part of the answer. It's just a matter of figuring out how we unlock that and how we make that happen for more people. Tony, I think that was a great way to end off the podcast. I like your impassioned plea for the industry. And I like the vision you see going forward. That was fantastic. And a reward for everybody that stuck around to the very end to listen. I want to thank First National for powering the podcast. I want to thank Tony for coming on today. And for those interested, of course, afterwards, we are going to have the after show where Aaron and I will share our thoughts on the last 45 minutes of discussion with Tony. And to end this all off, Tony, thanks a lot. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate having me on. Look forward to coming back again. And we want to thank our sponsor for this episode, Wise Meter Solutions, is Canada's leading provider of submetering and utility expense management services. Let us help you achieve your goals, be they a greener operation or financial performance, reflecting a $45,000 increase per suite in property value. With 185,000 suites under contract, Wise is your go-to partner. Welcome to the CRE podcast after show where Adam and I blabber on about what we thought about the conversation we just had. Totally honest. I really, really like Tony and he's such a good speaker. And clearly it's a very, very important component of our business. It always makes me a little uncomfortable just, and he addressed it so eloquently about landlords are vilified. When we have these conversations or we have these themes of a podcast where we're talking about rent freezes being bad and evictions not being able to, to be done through the landlord tenant, it just sounds just like I can just feel this sort of gremlin on the back of my head or on my shoulder just saying like, you're such a, you know, capitalist pig, right? Like you're just out there money grabbing. And so I always feel like I need to 
qualify over and over and over again that we always have the best interests of the tenants in mind, but it is ultimately a for-profit business. And there are tipping points at times where you've got to make the decisions, right? I always struggle with it because it's a really sort of sensitive topic. I'm almost just saying this so that everybody understands. We know and we appreciate how important it is for household security for those people who are residing in the apartments of our clients or in Tony's case, his members. But Aaron, who's going to take care of the 1%? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I did kind of address that when I said, I'm trying not to be cold here, but what about this huge sum of money that will likely not get repaid? And Tony mentioned, I guess, that issue had been brought up, but politically, that would play pretty badly in the press if the government started reimbursing landlords large checks to cover rent arrears. I mean, I don't fully understand the politics game. Again, you maybe would because I know you've been involved in the politics, but I think that would be a tough one to sell to the public to reimburse landlords for these rent arrears. But maybe that would happen. Uh, well, now we're digressing because we've had this conversation before, even on an after show about it really should be about the tenants getting the relationship with the government. And if they can't make the payment, they get some sort of subsidy from the government to allow them to continue to pay their rent. And it works that way. It's not government paying the landlord directly. It's the government paying the tenant, which I guess is kind of what CERB did. But you know, we're hearing stories about there's, you know, I don't know how many people that lots and lots of people that took advantage of it that are now getting kind of called back on the CRA saying you didn't deserve the money. And I mean, it's complicated. It's just it's a complicated issue. That landlord-tenant relationship, like you joked, it would be a tall task to solve that <laughs> dynamic, right? Like it's one of those things I think it's just going to last in perpetuity as long as mankind rents to other mankind, right? So, Well, on that ongoing battle, Tony mentioned vacancy decontrol being a part of the NDP's platform. And I will admit that I shuddered a bit when I heard that. For anybody not familiar with vacancy decontrol, under the current arrangement, when a unit comes up for rent and releases, you can just reset it to market under vacancy decontrol. You would only be able to increase your rent according to the annual guideline. So you'd be locked into that increase in perpetuity, which would be very limiting in rental growth over the long term and would also really disincentivize building new. And so, it again, back to politics, it does play well in politics and it would play well in the paper, serving a little justice to these greedy landlords, but it would really put a bucket of cold water on well, the industry. So that's funny. As he was going through that, I was having this internal dialogue about there are certain conversations or topics between landlords and tenants where it does get me a bit uncomfortable because I do see the argument on both sides. Like even the concept of the LTB and evictions, I can kind of say, yeah, maybe we shouldn't be evicting anybody right now. Like, sorry, landlord, you got to just figure it out. Like, this is just in the middle of a pandemic. And I can see that argument. But the vacancy decontrol is one of those ones where I don't have to be shy of my capitalism or anything. Like, it's just sound, simple logic, really, right? If you prevent landlords from increasing the rents when people move out, they're not going to build apartment buildings and rents are going to go even higher. Like, it's really, really simple. We acknowledge it's a supply issue. By doing vacancy decontrol, you are basically stopping all new supply. You don't have to be an economics major to understand supply and demand dynamics, right? You stop supply, you can just imagine an X on a graph with the lines moving. Prices are going to go up. It's just an inevitability. I don't have to apologize for standing very firmly behind objecting to vacancy decontrol. Well, especially now, Tony mentioned vacancy's gone up to 3%. You know, this is the highest it's been in, in quite a long time. That is not a lot of wiggle room. That is still a very, very well, tight market. I mean, there's lots of economists that say sort of 5% is probably more of a healthy equilibrium. So we're still in a very unhealthy, maybe not the right word, but at 3%, you're still got upward pressure on rents. I mean, we're in the middle of COVID in the middle of an unprecedented time. 
and you've still got an increasing rental engagement. Now, I know rents are kind of stable in the city of Toronto and downtown core areas. You might see some rent depreciation, but for the most part, it's either been stable or still going up in certain you know, pockets of the city. One thing that made me very happy in this episode was picking up a new piece of lingo. I had not heard the term unicorn site before. Was that new to you? Yeah. I wanted him to explain it. Then I started thinking it through. I'm like, oh no, I understand it. I don't need him to explain it. (laughs) Make sure we're both on the same page here. It's prime infill sites where you're ticking all the boxes for what make the most sense. It's the unicorn site. It's the site that's got everything you'd need, right? So any kind of defined it, I guess, right? It's infill sites. It's transport oriented, probably a good need probably existing apartment stock in the neighborhood. So it's already kind of got that apartment node feel to it, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the other one I never heard about is he talked about the concierge service at the city. Yes. I think that's a kind of an interesting concept. But it makes perfect sense. I mean, however you do it, the city can do their own unicorn site survey or whatever. But if they pick 100 sites and say, okay, these sites, we're going to fast track because they check all the boxes. Like, that's brilliant. That is, I mean, like you said, that we're trying to look for things that are actually achievable. That seems like something you'd think government should be able to wrap their heads around. You'd hope. <laughs> what was the term you used? Something about, you know, hope doesn't get you anywhere or something like Hope's that. Hope's not a good strategy. <laughs> Hope's not a good yes. strategy. Yeah. <laughs> we asked Tony to end off on a positive note. It was kind of mixed in terms of response, but he did definitely get his positive items. But one thing we didn't discuss is, yes, there are some headwinds in the apartment market, without a doubt. But finance, there are some positive news for apartments right now. The lending environment has never been better, and Aaron and I are proud to be part of it to help support the industry. Yep. Interest rates have never been lower. Hit them while they're hot. If you listen to Benjamin Paul, who's the sort of chief economist at CIBC, he's projecting 1.5% government of Canada bond at some point in the year 2021. That seems aggressive to me, but today they're 0.4 or 0.3 or hovering in that range. So Benjamin Tall, who's one of the sort of the preeminent economists in our industry, predicting a 100 basis point rise in interest rates over the next six to 12 months. Who knows, right? That's crystal ball, but I didn't say it. I'm not prescribing to it. I'm just telling you, there are smart people out there thinking that's what's going to happen. All right. Well, I guess that is everything we have to share in our thoughts for the episode today. I really enjoyed having Tony on. I hope the next time we see him, it's in person, but I guess that's up to the virus, not to me. So we'll see what happens. Thanks again to First National for powering the podcast, and we'll see you all next time. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.